Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, and this is podcast number eight. We're recording this on August 8th, 2018. Luke Doris, my partner in this uh, adventure here, is not here today. He's off getting married. So, Luke, when you listen to the podcast, congratulations, and I hope you're having a great uh, great wedding week and a great uh, honeymoon, and uh, we couldn't be happier for you, you and Kelly, uh, getting married this week. And today we're going to be joined by Dr. Phil Klotzbach, whose name, if you follow uh, hurricanes and hurricane seasonal forecasts, you know. Uh, we're going to talk about what makes a hurricane season busy, what's going on this hurricane season, and uh, all that kind of stuff. So that's just coming up here in just a minute, and we'll get to Phil. We'll also remember the original seasonal forecasts that were made by Dr. Bill Gray at uh, Colorado State University, and Phil's the guy that worked with Bill and took over that project. And Bill Gray was one of the most amazing people that you would ever want to know. As I said, we're recording this on Wednesday, August 8th, 2018. If you're listening at some point in the future, you got to tune in to Local 10. Check your Max Tracker app or your Local 10 weather app or, of course, local10.com for current information. This podcast sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Rain or shine, win big. Visit Miccosukee.com and discover the winner in you. That's the message from our friends at the Miccosukees. All right, in the tropics right now, uh, the tropics are e extraordinarily quiet. Now, I don't need to talk much about this because we'll talk about it with Phil, but uh, Debbie is going on, which is another one of these subtropical Storms, in other words, it's started by mechanisms that are not purely tropical. We uh, tend to this year, now that we're in August, look over by Africa and look at tropical waves that come across the Atlantic, and some of them organize and strengthen, and they become tropical storms and hurricanes. But these subtropical systems generally form by uh, because of old cold fronts or old uh, kind of northern variety low-pressure systems. And three of the four named storms we've had this year actually were subtropical at some point in their, uh, uh, in their arc of life. And that's an indication, really, that this hurricane season, uh, the, the Atlantic and the systems out there in the atmosphere and the ocean are not uh, really favorable. And we also have, obviously, a lot of dust going on. In the Pacific, the Pacific is very busy. Our hurricane Hector is moving by about 200 miles to the south of the Big Island of Hawaii, uh, right now, which is certainly uh, a good thing, but the eastern Pacific is getting very busy because El Nino is trying to want to develop. El Nino is warm water in the tropical Pacific, and the warm water there uh, helps create an environment that is conducive to storms developing. So when you get years that trend toward El Nino years, you tend to get more activity in the Pacific and less activity in the Atlantic, which, of course, is the way we like it because those Pacific storms generally go out to sea. Okay, let's uh, talk about seasonal hurricane forecasts and how they're, how they're done. Uh, these days, uh, this all started with Bill Gray, of course, uh, back in the 80s, but these days there's some 23 organizations or agencies that uh, make uh, hurricane season forecasts. In other words, how many tropical storms or hurricanes are going to form in the Atlantic Caribbean or the Gulf of Mexico? And that science developed by Bill Gray at Colorado State University in the early 80s. I remember asking Bill, what are you doing at Colorado State and studying hurricanes? But he, he loved the mountains and he loved Colorado. And, and for a whole set of reasons, that's where he set up. Bill had a number of superstar graduate students studying under him. We had one on the podcast a few weeks ago, Chris Lancey, at uh, for the National Hurricane Center. has had many jobs, and one of his 
really significant uh, positions and tasks has been kind of honchoing the reevaluation or reanalysis of all of the hurricanes uh, and tropical storms in the database, which is a really monumental and very worthwhile uh, task. We talked to him about that. And today we've got another one, another of Bill Gray's superstar graduate students who picked up the mantle on the seasonal forecast and uh, continued Bill's work. And now with a new partner, Michael Bell, who also came through the meteorology program at Colorado State. Now, Bill Gray passed away about two years ago now, but his legacy lives on in these great students and the ideas he left behind. So, Dr. Phil Klotzbach. Hi, Phil. Welcome to uh, our podcast. Hi, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's just a, a pleasure to have you here. And, you know, Phil and I go, go back to... Phil being a graduate student and Bill telling me how happy he was that he had a graduate student that wanted to take on uh, the uh, program. So before we talk about what you're doing now, uh, tell us about uh, Dr. Gray. I know he was a character and an inspiring mentor, uh, but also when I look up the history of hurricane science, every time I look up something and say, when did people start talking about that? It seems like his name is always there. Yeah, so I mean, I work with Dr. Gray from about, let's see, I came to grad school at CSU in 2000, and I work with him very closely till his death um, in uh, early 2016. Um, and he was just, he was a, he was a great guy. Um, so he had, he had a lot of the characteristics that you would think of your typical uh, professor. Uh, he, was, he was quite absent-minded and um, certainly had some, some fun course, but just an all-around just great guy, super generous. Um, and obviously brilliant as well, made fundamental hurricane discoveries. Um, as Brian already talked about, obviously did a ton with seasonal forecasting, really pioneered that. But he also did, he had spent um, over 20 years working with tropical cyclone genesis, structure, intensity change, things along those lines. He had spent over 20 years studying these topics before he even got into the seasonal forecasting realm. And I think really because he had done that, was really how he was able to get um, those seasonal forecasts out. Because I think if he had just kind of come into the field uh, prior to the mid-'80s, it was kind of would have been basically considered like heresy to say you could predict the hurricane season. Uh, but since he had been studying these storms for over 20 years, he already had a lot of credibility in the field, and people realized, you know, this guy wasn't just completely out to lunch. If he said that there was something there, there likely was something there. And Neil Frank, who was the Hurricane Center director at the time, was a good friend of Dr. Gray's and uh, really helped him get some entree into, um, you know, into the media and into the public, uh, public eye so they can get these seasonal forecasts out and show that there actually is some skill at being able to predict hurricane seasons months in advance. Did you go to Colorado State, uh, Colorado State specifically because Bill Gray was there? Yes, I did. So I applied to a few different grad programs uh, after undergrad, but certainly my, uh, my first choice was uh, was. Uh, Colorado State, because of the seasonal hurricane prediction, I had done some undergraduate research on seasonal forecasting. I actually did my undergrad thesis on seasonal hurricane prediction. So to me, Dr. Gray was kind of a kind of a rock star. Um, and just yeah, I mean, he his personality. He obviously was a brilliant scientist, but he also had a really a larger than life uh, personality associated with it. And if anyone's interested, we actually published a paper in the Bulletin of the American Meteorological Society last year. Uh, myself and several other of his former grad students, including Chris Lancy, who you just mentioned, kind of discussing his the research portion of his legacy, which is really quite tremendous. Now, I remember Bill telling me that he was sitting around thinking about hurricanes 
I think he said it was in Miami, but I'm not 100% on that. And it occurred to him that hurricane activity came in cycles, and there had to be something behind that. And he started looking for factors to consider and to weigh and that, that might be the reasons for these cycles. What do you know about how the idea of making seasonal forecasts came about? Yeah, so there was, there was a couple of things that actually kind of uh, triggered it. One of them was he actually had a visitor from Australia. His name was Neville Nichols, and Neville was doing some kind of seasonal analysis for Australia, and he had noted that there was a relationship in that part of the world between El Nino and hurricanes or tropical cyclones down there, and basically he had noted that when you had El Ninos in the tropical Pacific, you actually had fewer tropical cyclones around Australia as well. So actually it's the only part of the world where you have the same relationship um, that you do in the Atlantic, where El Nino reduces your storms. Um, so that that kind of got the idea a little bit in his head. And I think also, too, about that same time, he was teaching tropical meteorology, and he was one of the few people who kind of knew both El Nino years and hurricanes. He had an extraordinary memory, and he just said, hey, you know, when you have El Ninos, you tend to have, um, you just don't have the number of hurricanes. So kind of the way Dr. Gray did everything was very empirical. So he would say, come up with these statistical relationships and then try to understand physically, you know, why would something like El Nino in the tropical Pacific impact hurricanes, you know, hundreds or thousands of miles away in the Atlantic? Yeah, so we've talked about that. I talked about just a moment ago that El Nino, for instance, there's an El Nino kind of trying to develop this year. But when we have strong El Nino years, there is this kind of direct correlation with reduced hurricane activity in the Atlantic. Talk about what the physical uh, uh, mechanisms are that cause this warming of the water in the Pacific to end up squashing hurricane activity in the Atlantic? Yeah, so basically what happens is, and this was published back in 1984 and uh, still pretty much holds true, I think things have been tweaked a little bit, but, but the idea is, is that when you warm the tropical Pacific, what it does is it tends to shift where the thunderstorms form in the tropical Pacific. Typically they form their most intense near Indonesia, and when you have an El Nino, the waters are warm closer to the international dateline. So it tends to shift the thunderstorm formation zones a bit further east. And associated with those strong thunderstorms is strong upper-level flow out from the tops of those thunderstorms high up in the atmosphere. And what that does is it basically causes increased westerly winds, especially in the Caribbean, um, extending into the Atlantic. And those increased westerly winds basically mean increased what's known as vertical wind shear, which is a change in wind direction with height in the atmosphere. So in the Atlantic, your low-level winds blow out of the east, those are your trade winds, and your upper-level winds blow out of the west. So if you And so you have kind of a shear, if you think about it in the vertical, and if you have too much shear, what it does is it basically tilts the hurricane circulation, it disrupts it, you're less able to get the pressure fall that you need to get the winds to strengthen, and consequently, if you have especially a moderate to a strong El Nino, it really knocks down your storm activity, especially in the deep tropics. All right, so that's the El Nino correlation. But also uh, in the 80s and early 90s here in South Florida when we weren't having any hurricanes, although obviously Andrew uh, disrupted that trend, uh, I, that's when I first met Bill, and he would always say, you know, Florida is a sit sitting duck. It's this thumb sticking out right into Hurricane Alley, and the hurricanes are going to come back. Uh, he said, look in the history book. The hurricanes are going to come back. And he knew that because they had always come back in the past, and he had kind of mapped out these 
cycle. So besides the El Nino, which is kind of a year-to-year thing, there's also this overall Atlantic cycle that he identified. Yeah, so the Atlantic, um, obviously you have years like this year where the Atlantic is cooler than normal, um, and you have other years where the Atlantic is warmer than normal, and that that can vary on a year-to-year cycle, but it also can vary on longer-term time periods. You can have, say, 25- to 30-year periods that are more active and then less active. Um, and, and kind of in the popular term, you'll hear about this Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation, um, or AMO for short. And that basically is when the AMO is positive, that tends to increase the frequency of hurricanes in the Atlantic because it fuels – when the AMO is positive, that means the tropical Atlantic tends to be much warmer than normal. And warmer waters mean more fuel for the hurricane, but it also tends to be associated with – lower pressures or more unstable atmosphere and overall just conditions that are much more conducive for an active season. So that's why in the 80s and early 90s, Bill would say, they're coming back, they're coming back. So then when 1995 came along and suddenly the AMO switched and it's called an oscillation because it goes up and down, but over multi-decade time frame. Uh, But when 1995 came along, he was proved right. And I remember the the conference, uh, seeing him after that that year where they had this huge smile on his face. <laughs> yes, yeah. And so I know at one point he had thought the late 80s, maybe it was starting to tra- change back, and then the early 90s in general were very quiet in the Atlantic, uh, with the very notable exception, as you note, of Hurricane mm-hmm. Andrew in 1992. But I think Andrew in 92 certainly serves a very good point as well. Um, Dr. Gray had a great forecast that year in 1992, um, he predicted only one major hurricane in the Atlantic. There was only one that year. But obviously, for those living in South Florida, that one hurricane was obviously incredibly significant and caused huge amounts of damage. And I think that's one important point to note with the seasonal forecast is that regardless of the number of storms that are predicted, you can certainly have um, very devastating hurricanes in any year. Um, and so obviously, even though this season the outlooks are pointing towards a quieter overall hurricane season, it does not guarantee there will be no impact. So you and uh, Michael Bell now have taken over Dr. Gray's uh, project and continuing it on. How have seasonal forecasts evolved over the years from when he was doing it in the 80s and then I know he evolved at some in the 90s? So are they fundamentally different at all or, or uh, what are the similarities and differences now? Well, you know, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, especially the techniques we use at CSU, are still fairly similar in that we're looking at historical data to come up with these seasonal forecasts. Um, so basically what we do is we look for signals in the past that worked well at forecasting hurricane season. So, for example, as we've already talked about, El Nino, when you have El Nino in the tropical Pacific, it tends to mean fewer hurricanes in the Atlantic due to increases in upper-level winds. Um, then you have a lot of other predictors that are used to we use conditions in the Atlantic itself. We look at other large-scale parameters. And so I think our group at CSU, we use fairly similar techniques. However, the data that we use kind of underpinning the forecast is, has changed considerably, and that's just because back in the 80s, basically you had to call up and get individual station data from people, uh, say winds or pressure data at, at individual weather stations, whereas now we have globally gridded data that we can use to come up with these forecasts. Um, I think some tools that we, that we use at CSU that obviously Dr. Gray didn't have in the early 80s is that you have a lot of forecast models now that will do climate predictions several months into the future. Um, and so things like El Nino is, is at least some years better predicted 
than it was back in the 80s when you basically just, there was really no way to predict El Nino other than just using historical data. Um, Although sometimes it things, still surprises us, though. Correct, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's some years where the, the you, you were better off just using historical data than using any uh, any sort of uh, forecast model. So El Nino is certainly still, um, not, not, certainly not, not perfectly predictable. There's some years where the models help, other years I think they're, they're kind of useless. Um, now the key is obviously trying to figure out which one is which. But now we have globally gridded historical data that we can use um, to help with these forecasts. Um, and also, one of the things that we actually have access to that Dr. Gray didn't is we actually have access to even more historical data. They've gone back and um, taken a lot of old ship data, a lot of old uh, individual station data, and digitized it now. So we have access to even um, perhaps even more historical data than Dr. Gray did. So we can try to build these models on you know more old historical seasons um, because basically the, the more years of data you have in your model, um, the more kind of realizations of how the atmosphere ocean behave. Um, now, one other thing I did want to point out is uh, with these seasonal forecasts, uh, when we started doing these, CSU was the only one doing these. But as you noted, uh, we now have we have a website that I've built with a group from Barcelona, um, and it's called seasonalhurricanepredictions.org. And uh, this group, this website's hosted by the Barcelona Supercomputing Center. And on this website, we have over two dozen groups submitting seasonal hurricane predictions for just the Atlantic Basin. Um, and these groups use a variety of techniques. Some use techniques similar to what we do at CSU. Others actually use numerical, dynamical models and try to predict. Basically, what the model will do is it'll actually spin up hurricanes over the course of the season. And then they basically will add those up and say, this is how many hurricanes we expect to get. Um, there's kind of some more machine learning type techniques that groups are using now. Um, so I think while kind of the fundamental physics of it are still very similar to what was done in the past with Dr. Gray, um, there certainly are some, you know, new techniques that are being used given obviously improve, improvements in computational technology as well as improvements in just uh, weather prediction and climate prediction. All right. So let's talk about this hurricane season. I mean, the you mentioned wind shear, which essentially means unfavorable upper-level winds. Uh, just looking at the Caribbean, there's high shear in the Caribbean, and there's forecast to be high shear forever in the Caribbean, as far out as the models go. But your uh, kind of uh, last seasonal prediction is out. I know you do these uh, bi-weekly kind of predictions uh, as, uh, still coming up. But your August forecast is out. So uh, what are you seeing in terms of the rest of this hurricane season? Yeah, so with the August forecast, we continue to predict a, um, a below-average overall hurricane season. Uh, we've already had three named storms, and, or actually four named storms. Four named seven, storms, yeah. Four, four named storms. So our seasonal forecast we put out last week was for nine additional named storms, so eight if you count Debbie, so 12 total. Uh, we've had our A through D storms, so eight additional storms, three additional hurricanes. Uh, I don't think Debbie was going to make hurricane. Um, and then one major hurricane uh, for the basin. So that's a little bit below normal. Um, and the primary reason why that's the case is because right now the tropical Atlantic is, is, is quite a bit colder than normal. Um, it's running about half a degree Celsius or one degree Fahrenheit colder than normal. And that's basically when you average the water temperatures from off the coast of Africa all the way to basically the uh, the Lesser Antilles, um, and while one degree Celsius or one degree Fahrenheit doesn't seem like much, it's a big deal in the tropics. Uh, one two degrees makes huge differences um, just in how kind of overall conducive the climate is going to be or, or is not going to be. Because basically, when you change the water temperatures, you then change the pressure patterns, which changes your wind patterns, 
which basically overall just changes how things circulate in the tropics. And so if you have colder water, that tends to mean higher pressure, more stable air. As, as Brian mentioned, we've seen a lot of dust, um, very high shear. And so overall conditions this year you know, do not look particularly conducive for, um, for much in the way of hurricane activity. But as Brian also mentioned, we do issue two-week forecasts during the peak months of the season. And the reason that we do that is just because an entire season um, is active or inactive, it doesn't guarantee that every all, all the, the entire season is going to be that way. For example, if you look back to last year, um, August and October of last year were pretty much dead on normal months, not, not, nothing out of the ordinary, but it was the most active September on record. Um, so we try to kind of pinpoint when during the season we're likely to see above or below average periods to try to kind of provide some useful information beyond just the, uh, the seasonal time scale. And I guess that the fact that you're making forecasts for a, a, a time that is much closer to where when you are in the future, your two-week forecasts are naturally better forecasts because you really have a better handle on what the overall atmospheric and oceanographic pattern is going to be. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, the tricky thing with the two-week forecast is, you know, you have kind of the weather models do pretty well out to about a week. Um, but then you're starting to look more at kind of what the sub-seasonal characteristics are like. So you have kind of a background state of the season, but then there's other climate uh, influences that come in on sub-seasonal timescales that can potentially make conditions either – basically can either, either kind of add to or detract from kind of what's going on on the seasonal level. So, again, just because the season we're expecting below average overall activity, I, there certainly could be periods – even if our forecast pans out, that are that are above normal or at least near normal. Yeah, you can suddenly get a kind of a bubble of favorable uh, atmospheric conditions over some area of warm water, like fairly close into Florida or in the Gulf or or in the Straits of Florida. And again, I'm thinking of Hurricane Andrew, that it was really this very narrow you know, bubble of favorable atmospheric winds that were just ideal for storm development and it happened to be right around uh, Florida. Exactly. Dr. Gray used to call those kinds of storms Bahama busters. Basically <laughs> yeah. the storms that kind of were kind of nothing storms and then get into that Bahamas area. Um, in that area, you have very warm ocean water, but it's also very deep. So it's, even if storms aren't moving that fast, they can still continue to intensify just because um, the overall water conditions there are, are so conducive. And like you said with Andrew, there was kind of a Kind of, it basically just kind of threaded the needle, found the, where the conditions were conducive, and and and, and went nuts. Yeah, so uh, it can happen. Do you see a day when we'll be able to make seasonal forecasts with a, a significant degree of certainty, or, or is the system of the atmosphere and the ocean just so chaotic that there is some predictability barrier? You know, I, I mean, I think with the so we issue forecasts in April. Um, then we updated in June, a uh, short update in July, and then one in August. And I think, you know, while while the, the last update is two months into the hurricane season, basically most years very little happens in June and July. Over 95% of all your major hurricane activity occurs after the 1st of August. Um, and usually the August forecast is pretty good because you have a pretty good idea at that point whether you're going to see El Nino or not. Um, but the earlier seasonal outlooks, you know, it's really highly dependent on whether you can forecast El Nino correctly. Uh, for example, if, if you think like last year, we thought El Nino was coming in early April, right. so most of the seasonal forecasts were kind of low, you know, in April. Right. And by August, everyone was forecasting an above average season. But 
you know, the, the early seasonal forecasts for last year weren't good. And I think it's just because, you know, you're, if you do a forecast in April, you're two months prior to the start of the season and really four months prior to when the season really ramps up. And there's just a whole lot that can change during that amount of time. So I guess it's fair to say on the El Nino forecasts, we think that the mechanism that can trigger an El Nino is a very sensitive mechanism uh, that happens in the spring or in the early summer or something like that. And because it is such a sensitive mechanism that it's very, very hard. We don't have the mechanism really to predict it uh, all the time. Correct. Yeah. So basically with El Nino, you know, kind of the, the there are certain times a year or there are certain years where the, the ocean is basically kind of primed because basically El Nino is taking heat from the Western Pacific and discharging it into the Eastern Pacific. And so you need to have kind of a certain amount of heat that's built up to generate an El Nino. So there's certain years where you're not going to get an El Nino because the heat's just not there. But there are other years where the heat's there and you think you're going to get an El Nino and then and things start to head that way and then you don't get the wind forcing to kind of sustain it. And then it just kind of fizzles, which is what we saw in 2017. Right. We also saw that in 2014 where we thought a big El Nino was coming and it kind of fizzled and then the next year we got the big El Nino. So I think that's it, – it's certainly – there's kind of things that will load the dice towards El Nino, but then I think there it is kind of highly dependent on specific wind forcing, especially during the spring into the early summer. And, you know, I'm not necessarily convinced we're ever going to have a super great amount of predictability there, although there's certainly a lot of models and a lot of effort and a lot of resources being spent on trying to improve those forecasts because – Obviously, they're critical for hurricane forecasts, but they're also critical for so many other things in the global climate system, rainfall, temperature, things along those lines that are, you know, and, and it's more than just the Atlantic, it's global in terms of El Nino's impacts. Yeah, yeah, we we focus here on hurricanes, but in California, obviously, they worry about El Nino and the rain and La Nina's, and, and the because the Pacific Ocean is so big, if you have a part of the Pacific Ocean that's unusually warm, that just has a lot to do with how the atmospheric pattern develops uh, around the northern hemisphere. Correct. Yeah. And the southern and the hemisphere, thing, as a matter of fact. Correct, yes. And the tricky thing, obviously, with El Nino is typically kind of right where it forms, you know, you, you know, kind of know, okay, if El Nino forms, it's going to rain a lot in places like Peru and Ecuador. But as you get further away from the source region, other things can mess with it, too. So, you know, typically, say, in California, they say, okay, if El Nino, we're going to get a lot of rain. Well, that works some of the time, but there's other years where you don't get the rain, and that's just because other phenomenon can come in and change things, too. That You know, it's not just the tropical Pacific. What are things like in the North Pacific? How are things in other parts of the world? And that can also kind of mess with things. And I think that's something we see with the seasonal forecast, too, is, you know, we have what's El Nino going to do, but it may depend somewhat on kind of where the maximum warmth is in the El Nino and then kind of what the Atlantic looks like. Um, typically... Uh, if the Atlantic is w- much warmer than normal, if you have a weak El Nino, you may still get an active season, and we certainly saw that in 2004. Right. But there's other years where if the El Nino or the Atlantic is cool, where even even if you don't necessarily even need an El Nino, maybe even just neutral conditions can be enough to, to really suppress the season. I think that might be the case this year. Um, if we get to El Nino, it's going to be bare, you know, by the skin of our teeth um, since obviously hurricane season's here. Um but we still think the season is going to be, be quiet just because the Atlantic is, is, is just not conducive right now. Although we are seeing already the high shear in the Atlantic, so maybe it'll, it'll end the hurricane season early if it ever really gets started in a kind of normal kind yes, of way. Yes, yes, and that's a good point. That's, 
that's that's a good point. I was going to say with El Nino, the signal is actually strongest late in the season because typically what starts your season in the deep tropics is getting the basically the, the water temperatures warm enough and the moisture high enough. And what ends your season is your shear. So in an El Nino year, you can get stuff in August and September, but typically Octobers of El Nino years are very quiet. And we saw that even in 2004. Um, it went gangbusters in August and September, but October had very little storm activity, and that was likely due to the El Nino that was really ramping up during that time. Yeah, so that's what we're, we're hoping for that because uh, South Florida, it's the peak of the hurricane season is in September and October. More so than in August, although obviously in late August, bad things can happen here on occasion as well. All right, uh, Phil, before you go, uh, just because I like to ask all meteorologists, uh, was there a weather event that got you into meteorology? You know, I was, I, I've been really fascinated by the weather for as long as I can remember. But I know for me in terms of hurricanes, I grew up in Massachusetts, and in 1985, Hurricane Gloria came through Connecticut, um, and while it wasn't super close to us, it certainly brought some pretty strong winds, heavy rain. The power went out for a while. And I just remember being fascinated, kind of watching that storm, watching it on TV, and kind of watching what happened there. So that kind of really kind of perked my interest in hurricanes. And then also the Hurricane Bob go through in 1991, which kind of helped reinvigorate my interest in hurricanes. And then about the time I started to go to went to college was 1995, which is the year, as you mentioned, where the Atlantic really started heating up. So um, certainly... Being in college at the time where we had a lot of really active seasons certainly helped uh, fuel my interest in hurricanes. But I've been, yeah, really fascinated by the weather as long as I can remember. All right. Dr. Phil Klotzbach uh, from uh, the legacy of, of Dr. Bill Gray at Colorado State University, uh, now in California. Thanks so much for uh, being with us here, Phil, and it's always great to talk to you. Thanks, Brian. Take care. All right. You take care. All right. Phil is uh, Phil's a terrific guy, and, and like I said, I've known him since uh Dr. Craig introduced me to him, and I can remember Bill being so excited that he had a graduate student that was really into seasonal forecasts because he was concerned that uh, his work would not go on because he knew <laughs> when I met him, he was, I guess, in his 70s. No, he was in his 60s, I guess, when I met him. But, you know, obviously he had retirement in his mind, but he really didn't completely retire up to the actually the day he died. So he was a wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, the podcast, as I said, is sponsored by your neighbors, the Miccosukee Tribe. Rain or shine, win big. Visit Miccosukee.com and discover the winner in you. Now, last week on podcast number seven, I said something that I don't know what was uh, wrong with my uh, brain. I said that there were only two hurricanes that had hit South Florida in August. Uh, Cleo and Andrew. Cleo in 1964, Andrew in 1992, of course. And I don't know why, I forgot Katrina. In 2005, uh, Katrina formed 6 p.m. on the 25th of August, just right on the Dade-Broward line at, and the Atlantic coast. So officially it came ashore as a Category 1 hurricane. It had only formed the morning before over the Bahamas. So 2005 was a very different kind of year. You know, It wasn't that long ago, but we forget that the storms that year all formed, all the big ones, formed on our side of the ocean. We didn't watch them like we watched Irma last year coming all the way across from Africa. They all formed close to us, and uh, Katrina was uh, no exception, forming in the Bahamas. 
So let me just talk briefly about another storm that we never really talk about here in South Florida because it happened in 1888. And 1888, it was a significant hurricane. It hit Miami, what is now Miami, uh, head on. It came right over Miami Beach is the modern understanding of the track. It's called the Louisiana Hurricane because there was no Miami at the time. Miami as a city, the mother city of South Florida, didn't get incorporated until 1896. In fact, Julia Tuttle, who's called the mother of Miami, kind of Julia Tuttle and Mary Brickle are the two mothers of Miami, I guess. Uh, Julia Tuttle north of the Miami River and Mary Brickle south of the Miami River. Uh, Julia Tuttle wasn't even here yet. She didn't even come until 1891. But the hurricane uh, was pretty well charted, and we know pretty good information about it in the Bahamas because the, the Bahamas were British territory in the late 19th century, and the storm came right over Cat Island and passed near Nassau, and we actually have wind observations from Nassau. And then on the morning of August 16th, 1888, the U.S. Signal Corps, which was the predecessor to the Weather Bureau, which became the predecessor to the National Weather Service and, of course, the National Hurricane Center, first became aware of the storm. It was offshore of South Florida. Now, the modern estimate was that it came ashore at Miami Beach, the center of the circulation, came ashore about 3 p.m., on the 16th of August as a 125-mile-an-hour Category 3 hurricane. Now, since there was no city here and only a few kind of settlers uh, in the area, we obviously didn't have wind measurements. But what, what they did have is some tide measurements. And they said the ocean water rose 14 feet. Now, what we don't know is, does that include the waves? What exactly is that measurement? And uh, what was the tide exactly? Even though if it came in at 3 p.m., we could look that up. But, but you know, we don't know exactly what that 14 uh, feet of water means. But what we do know is that along the Atlantic coast, along the beaches, Miami Beach, showing up to, you know, Sunny Isles Beach and Fort Lauderdale, you can't really get a storm surge of much more than about 10 feet, no matter how strong the storm is. Now you have big waves on top of that, so you can get really high water, and that water can come you know, well inland and do tremendous damage right at the coast. But, but 10 feet is about what you can get. Now in Biscayne Bay and in inland waterways, you can get uh, up to almost double that, uh, like we did in Hurricane Andrew, but that's because the bay is shallow. But offshore of the east coast of Florida, the ocean is pretty deep, and so that doesn't let you get as much storm surge. So we're not sure exactly what that 14 feet means, but uh, taking into account the pressure readings that are available and uh, what they know about what happened with the storm in terms of the size of the storm, that's the estimate, 125 miles per hour, Category 3, on August 16th, coming right over Miami Beach, kind of the untalked-about uh, hurricane that hit South Florida. Uh, reminder, if you want to send in any kind of thoughts or questions, send them to weatherpod at wplg.com, weatherpod at wplg.com. You know, I get uh, questions all the time. One of them that this comes up all the time is about names of hurricanes and tropical storms, you know, where they come from, how do I get my name on there? Well, the names... <laughs> The names are actually done by the what's called the World Meteorological Organization, uh, the WMO, and the WMO has regions, and Region 4 is our region, 
And the National Hurricane Center is kind of the leader of that. But there's a committee. And so storm names can get retired because if a hurricane hits somewhere and does a lot of damage, the country affected can ask that that name be retired. And so last year, obviously, Irma, Harvey, and uh, Maria uh, were retired, for, for example. But all this started... It actually technically started, even though it didn't have anything to do with our modern version, in Australia in the late 19th century. But the modern version of what we do started with the military in the 40s because they had to deploy uh, people out to airplanes and out. If there was more than one storm, uh, you, you needed names for them. And so they started designating the storms in 1947, and they used the kind of military alphabet, the uh, Abel, Baker, Charlie, uh, Delta, Echo, what do I know about that alphabet? I know G is George uh, and K is Kilo. I remember that. But in any case, they started doing that in 47, but that didn't get any kind of public circulation. Then in 1950 was a really busy hurricane year. In fact, that was the last uh, Category 4 hurricane to hit Miami was in 1950, Hurricane King, which was the K. So maybe K was King. I guess K has to be King, yes, because there was a were kings earlier. Kilo is a different military al- alphabet. That's right. Anyway, K is king, and that was 1950 as well as Hurricane Easy that hit the Tampa area, and there was Dog and Jog and, and other ones that were significant. Well, they had all these hurricanes going on, and uh, Grady Norton of the uh, Weather Bureau in Miami decided to use the Air Force's names because it was confusing. The, it was confusing to the public, and he did that in his year-end summary. Well, during the year in San Juan, the uh, Weather Bureau office there actually used those names in an advisory for the first time, and that was Hurricane Fox. So the first hurricane to actually be named in real time during an advisory was in 1950, and it was Hurricane Fox, which was the F in the military alphabet. And then 1953, because they were using the same alphabet every year, and that wasn't going to work. So in 1953, they changed to female names, and they ended up using the same alphabet of female names twice. And then they went to a rotating list every four years, and then eventually every six years. And and then in 1979, uh, Dr. Neil Frank was uh, in charge of the Hurricane Center, and they they decided to uh, use male and female names and alternate them, and that's the system we have today. So anyway, one of the questions that comes up a lot. All right, uh, so that's our podcast for this week. Uh, just a reminder that the podcast is sponsored by your friends at the Miccosukee Tribe. Rain or shine, win big. Visit Miccosukee.com and discover the winner in you. And we'll be back uh, next week. Next week, we're going to talk about a really significant South Florida hurricane. It happened 90 years ago this year. We'll talk to the guy that knows a tremendous amount about the great Okeechobee hurricane of 1928 that also was worse than Maria and Puerto Rico. So we'll talk to you then. Have a good week, and we'll see you next week here on the podcast. <laughs>